You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, we follow a long line of faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, don't we? And this is our moment. We've been reflecting on some of the instigators of the German Reformation here on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and we come at last to Martin Luther, I think most important of them all. Not just because Martin Luther takes us to the epicenter of the Reformation itself, but because Martin takes us to the heart of the Christian message. Our story tonight begins in a tower. Martin Luther had what he called a tower experience or an evangelical breakthrough. The year is 1515. Martin is 32 years old. Would you imagine him sitting at a desk in a tower at the top of a monastery, which was the space they gave him for his studies? He would look back on this tower moment many years later, and he would write about it this way. He would say, I was seized with the conviction that I must understand Paul's letter to the Romans. But to that moment, one phrase in chapter 1 stood in my way. I hated the idea, and here's the phrase, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. But, and here's the breakthrough, at last, meditating day and night, and by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through gates that had been flung open. Uh, This was a turning point in Martin's life. It was a turning point, actually, in modern history. This moment would change his life. Tonight, I've titled this message, The Monk and Your Faith. Reason for that is, uh, my prayer is that as we read the same text that Martin Luther read, there'll be a breakthrough in your life as well. So I want you to think tonight about, about your faith. Let's, uh, before I tell you a little bit about Martin Luther, go back to the very part of the Bible that he was pondering in that tower back in 1515. Will you pull out the black book in front of you, please, and turn to page 914, where you'll find Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And as you do that, if you're able, would you stand with me? Uh, What a privilege it is to have the scriptures, God's word, in our own native language or in our own uh, language. It may not be our native language, but this was a privilege for which many reformers gave their lives. So uh, let's read it together. And as we're done, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. 
You might keep the text open there. Many commentators say that these two verses are really Paul's summary or theme statement for the entire epistle uh, to the Romans. It's at the heart of his message, in other words. And I'd like to reflect with you on this passage by thinking of two questions that Martin might have asked of it when he was 32 years old, and then I want to reflect briefly on uh, his most famous hymn. So first, let's go back to that tower and look over his shoulder and read this text with Martin Luther. We might wonder with Luther about this question, what's so good about the good news? Notice in verse 16 that the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Now that word gospel he uses, this is the word that Jesus himself used of his central message. This is the word that his followers would use whenever they told the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. What does gospel mean? It means a wonderful declaration a great announcement, simply good news. What's so good about the good news? Well, for Luther, it was the good news that taught him he no longer needed to crawl into God's favor. Let me explain that. As you study Luther's life, what you realize is that in the early part of his life, for 32 years, he could never do good enough to be good enough. Now, he was a regular guy, ordinary in every way, just like you and me. He was a little bit gritty. He had a great sense of humor. He drank too much beer. Uh, He struggled with anxiety and bouts of depression. Some people say he had mental illness. He was driven very hard by his family, working-class family at the beginning. His dad was a a minor. His mom had this little ditty that she seared into his memory. She said this, if folk don't like you and me, the fault with us is like to be. Now, I don't recommend you teach that to your children. His father noticed that young Luther was very bright and had aspirations for him, a lot of ambitions, and so pushed him hard that he might get an education, go to law school, and become an attorney. And Luther followed course. When he was 22 years old, in 1505, he was caught in a terrible uh, storm. He was crossing a field on his way to law school when there was a lightning strike. It was so near and so powerful that it physically knocked him off his feet, and he was left crawling on the ground, begging for mercy, cried out to St. Anne. He said, if you rescue me, I will become a monk. Well, unfortunately, he was rescued, and uh, almost immediately he sold his books, and much to his father's horror, he joined a monastery. Life in a monastery didn't do much for Martin Luther's depression. He was actually a very dutiful monk. He worked very hard to work for God's approval. He was faithful in prayer. He kept many vows. He lingered at confession, but he found no peace in the monastery. In 1510, there was a monk who was sent to Rome on a business trip. The monks didn't travel alone, so uh, Luther himself was invited to attend and accompany him. And now, for Martin Luther, this was an opportunity because he thought to himself, wow, a journey to Rome, the holy city on pilgrimage, surely this would be a feat that would capture God's attention. And it was a remarkable feat. In that day to walk, it was a thousand miles to Rome. They walked on foot a thousand miles and they walked over the Alps to get there. 
But for me, it wasn't the walk there. It was something that happened when Luther was in Rome that seems to best represent the struggle of his life, this phase. He found himself at a staircase called the Scala Sancta. Scala Sancta. It means the holy staircase. Some of you may have been to Rome and you've seen the Scala Sancta. It was thought to be somehow the very staircase that uh, Jesus climbed to be condemned by Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. And so pilgrims would come from far and wide to climb this sacred staircase. They would do so on their knees. It had 28 steps, and at each step they would say, Our Father. And it was rather grueling as they would mount this step, climbing, they thought, into God's favor. Martin joins these pilgrims. He's got great hopes and expectations for this, but when he gets to the top, he wonders, is it enough? In fact, what he said was, who knows whether it is so? Doubt. The point is, he didn't find the peace for which he had been searching. There's no breakthrough at the top of those stairs. But there is in the tower now. Some years later, he's there reading Romans chapter 1, what you just read, and then there's this breakthrough. Now, what happens? Let me try to explain it to you this way. During the Reformation, the Reformers, Luther, uh, read in the original languages. They read the Bible just as it was written. Uh, up to now, the medieval church had been reading in Latin. They had been reading Jerome's translation. And so now Luther's reading verse 17 in Greek. When he comes upon this phrase, the righteousness of God, he says, I've, I've hated it. But now he's reading it not in Latin, but in Greek. And there's a difference. Let me say it this way. In Latin, the word justification means to make righteous. But in Greek, the word means simply to consider righteous or even to declare righteous. And for Luther, this meant all the difference in the world. He knew he hadn't been made righteous, so in that sense, he wasn't participating in anything that was good news to him at all. It just condemned him. But if while he was yet a sinner, Christ had died for him, while he was yet a sinner, God had somehow found means to be able to say of Luther, you are righteous, not by your works, but by my grace. This surely was a breakthrough, and it felt like the gates of paradise were open to him in that moment. Because what it meant was, I am enough. I am enough. Luther would make a distinction between what he called our proper righteousness and our alien righteousness. Almost as if to say there are really two Georges. There's the proper righteousness that George has by virtue of his deeds. This is his moral character. But there's another righteousness in George, another George, the one that is whole, the one that is healthy, the one that is a, a lover of God and neighbor. This is the one that is declared to be George by the gracious act of God in Jesus Christ. We have an alien righteousness. It's really the righteousness of Jesus. The equation here is much like uh, Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 where Paul writes, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who know no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus has an alien sinfulness. He never sinned, but God attributes sinfulness to him. 
And we, because of the work of Jesus Christ, have an alien righteousness. We're not 100% righteous, but God has attributed to us the, the, the complete righteousness of Jesus just as a gift to us. I mean, it's like you and Jesus turned the exam in at the exact same moment and somehow they got switched. And now you're going to get his grade and he's going to get your grade. It's like the medical reports have been switched. It's like the uh, resumes have been switched. The itineraries have been switched. The financial credentials, the retirement accounts have been switched. And now everything that Jesus earned has been credited to your account. Why is the good news so good? It is because you and I are more than enough in God's eyes. See that? Well, this was the breakthrough for Luther. And I want to invite you to consider who you are who you really are as you understand yourself. Because if you're like me, you're living on a performance treadmill. And this is one way we talk about it here at UPC. Sometimes we say we're living in a uh, do-to-be world. You have to do something in order to be someone that matters. We learn this from the early age, our parents, our school, our jobs. The whole society reinforces this idea that if and only if you do something, then you really are someone. And yet the gospel teaches us we actually have a be-to-do God. God says, no, 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 already, before you do anything at all, you are everything to me. And it's out of who you are in Jesus Christ that then you start to do things. It's because you are already righteous that you start to live a righteous life. It's because you have within you the wisdom of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, that you start to live with this power and wisdom and glory and righteousness in your life. So it becomes critical to know who you really are because our lives flow from that. What's so good about the gospel? Well, it's, as Paul says, the power of God for salvation. God has embraced the world in order to transform it, and he's embraced you. Let's come to another question, the second one. As we look over Luther's shoulder as he reads this text, we might wonder with him, how does this become good news for me? I'm happy for Luther. I'm happy for all the reformers. But I might not believe that this is really true for me. How does that happen? Well, verse 17 gives us the answer. Let's again look at the text. The one who is righteous will live by faith. Faith. Not works, not intentions, not even good theology. This is not about do, this is about done. It's what God has done in Jesus Christ. And we receive that simply by faith. See, the good news not only taught Luther, he no longer needs to crawl into God's approval. The good news taught Luther how to stand, how to stand on the promise of God as though Jesus really were enough for him, and that he, therefore, is more than enough for God. The year after this tower experience is 1516, and there's a man who came to town named Johann Tetzel. He came to Wittenberg, and if Johann Tetzel hadn't come to Wittenberg, you and I probably would never have heard the name Martin Luther. But Tetzel comes 
with a fundraising mission. He's trying to raise money, and he does so by selling indulgences. You've heard about indulgences. Uh, the medieval church understood that there was this place called purgatory, which is not taught anywhere in the Bible. And if you bought an indulgence, then you could actually free a loved one from purgatory into heaven sooner. Now, this drove Martin Luther absolutely crazy. Uh, he just had this evangelical awakening, and here Tetzel runs around town preaching, and he says, for example, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Oh my gosh, Luther was irate. And so, on the eve of All Saints Day, when we would be thinking about those who had died, our loved ones, on October 31st, 1517, Luther throws down the gauntlet, and he goes to the door of the cathedral, and he nails there this 95 principles, 95 theses, and it's really actually an invitation to a debate. He was, he was putting those up there saying, let's talk about this. I want to talk about the practice of indulgences and see whether they aren't being abused in light of grace. Well, as it happens... The debate never happened, uh, but because of this technological innovation called the printing press, they mass-produced those 95 theses, and soon in all the great cities around Europe, they were all reading Martin Luther's words. It wouldn't be long before people wouldn't be selling indulgences so much as they would be selling posters of Martin Luther. I kid you not, he became a celebrity, and they were running posters, and everyone, I want a poster of Martin Luther, well, like we'd want our Richard Sherman poster or something like that. This is one of the great ones. He became famous. And it wasn't that, and that fame didn't do him any favors with respect to the Roman Catholic Church at the time because they didn't really appreciate his theological improvements. And so they hunted him down. He was kidnapped by a friend for his own safety. Eventually, uh, the church called him to account uh, at the Diet of Worms, which wasn't the cool thing that happens after the vegan or paleo diet. It was actually, um, a diet means a trial, and it was in the city of Worms. And so there he stood before this august assembly of ecclesial and civil uh, rulers, and they, and they actually excommunicated him uh, at that point. They were asking him to recant, and you may have heard this. Luther rather famously said, My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. In other words, you know... I would love to go along with what you're saying, but I've learned that I can't stand on anything other than God's promise in the Scripture. He stands in faith. This is the posture of faith. So let me ask you, what is faith? How would you define faith? Here's Martin Luther's definition. I found this, and I really like it. Luther writes, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. It's living because it's daily. It's daring because it calls us out of ourselves uh, into this vision of who God says we really are. Think of it as confidence. There was a missionary several years ago that was trying to translate the Bible into the, the tongue of a native peoples in a remote area. And he couldn't find a word for the life of him for faith, which is a problem if you're translating the Bible. One day, he noticed that these villagers routinely, after a hard day of work, would collapse into hammocks and rest before the evening meal. 
One of them described this with a word that indicated we put the full, our full weight down in the hammock. And he said, that's it. That's what faith is. It's putting our full weight down on Christ. That's, that's, that's confidence. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a living, daring confidence to put your weight down on the promise of God and Christ. Well, as a person of faith like you, over the years, I've uh, come up with a, a lot of people who said, George, I admire your faith. I wish I could believe like you do. I, I'm just not a person of faith. I don't really have any faith. And usually I, I realize a person is trying to pay me a compliment, so I smile and say, well, I thank you. But I honestly don't believe a word of what they're saying. Because what I've come to see is that all of us live by faith. There's no such thing as a person of faith in any unique sense. We all have faith. When you came in here tonight and you sat on that wooden bench, you exercised faith that that bench could support the full weight of your body, right? When you go on an airplane, you exercise faith in the engineers and the pilots and the uh, air traffic controllers. When you put your money in a bank or Venmo, you've got faith in people, right? When you take a pill that you get from a pharmacy, Bartels, you have faith in the pharmacist, faith in the physician, faith in the scientist. We all are people of faith. The question is, what do we put our faith in? Friends, there's nothing unusual about you except that you have decided to put your faith in a worthy object, Jesus Christ. Sometimes people say, well, actually what I meant is I don't have much faith in God. And... Uh, and, I, and I, again, I have a little, I mean, I'm kind of a picky person and I'm an English major. So I go back and I go, well, it's that word so much faith that I want to drill into because it's not so much the quantity of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. It doesn't bother me that you don't have much faith. What I want to encourage you to do is just find the right place to put it. Let me give you an illustration of this. So let's suppose it's winter, it's coming, and we all go out to Green Lake and we're there on the shore and... And you say to me, George, I have a ton of faith. I'm just a, a woman of great faith, and I'm going to walk out on this ice and demonstrate my faith. I've got more faith than GMC has cars and trucks to sell. Watch what happens when a person of faith walks out on ice. And what you know is that the, faith, uh, the, the ice is only a quarter inch thick. What's going to happen when she walks out on the ice? Curse splash, she's going down, right? Now... Somebody else says, you know, I, I, I really wouldn't try that because I have very little faith. You couldn't fill a thimble with my faith. It's almost no faith whatsoever. Somewhat apologetic. But what you happen to know is now it's later in the winter. It's been a cold one, and the, the ice is four feet thick. Well, when this person walks out on the ice, what happens? It holds. See, the point is it doesn't really matter how much faith you have. What matters is how thick is the ice? Can it support your weight? See? So here's the question. When you think about your faith, if you want to have a breakthrough, you have to learn how to put the full weight of your life on Jesus. There's so many things that our culture invites us to put our weight on. I wonder, what are you, what are you standing on in your life right now? It might be your smarts, your resume, your popularity, your finances. It might be technology. It might be politics. Those are all good things, but I'm here to tell you tonight, none of them is enough. Not all of them taken together is enough. Only Jesus can support the full weight of your life. Only he is worthy as an object.
Well, this is how the good news becomes good news for you and for me, simply by receiving it with faith. The good news is so good that it wins our confidence. The more we understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, the more we want to put our weight upon him. And it's putting our weight on him that makes it good news for us. Let me close now by reflecting just briefly on this great hymn that Martin Luther wrote. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We'll be singing it in a moment. The reason I want you to think about this hymn is because it reminds me, at least, that the life of faith is a life of struggle. And that's counterintuitive for some reason for us today. But listen to what Luther, this man of great faith, says in the hymn. Our helper he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Which means Luther understands that there are many days when the mortal ills will overwhelm you and prevail. Struggle. I told you that Luther suffered great bouts of depression, and they were absolutely debilitating in his case. One time he wrote a letter to his dear friend, Philip Melanchthon. And he said, Philip, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble, completely abandoned by Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. Luther had a, a word for this experience. It was desolation. It happened often. He lost children. He, he experienced physical illness. And then this depression. It was just an experience of desolation. So devastating. These are the words of the mature Martin Luther years after his evangelical awakening. This is a faithful Martin Luther in this struggle. Maybe think as I was reflecting on Luther this week, what would happen if when he climbed the Scala Sancta, that stairway in Rome, he had sat on the top and just thought? And what would have happened if God himself, the creator of the universe, had sat down beside him and the two of them had had a conversation? I wonder if maybe it would have gone like this. Luther says proudly, look what I've done. And God says, well, good job. But really, that's nothing. Luther, surprised, I left the security of a legal career for you. God, my son, left the glory of heaven. Luther, I climbed the holy stairs for you. God, my son climbed them to be condemned to death. Luther, I have scrapes all over my knees for you. God, my son has nail prints in his hands. Luther, exasperated, well, this is exactly what I feared. That there is a God, and that all you care about is what we do or don't do, and that you're just here first to judge us and next to abandon us in outer darkness. God, patiently, Luther, I think you're missing the point. Luther, well, then why go on about how great your son is? I can never measure up to him, God. I tell you this, my dear child, because what my son did, he did for you, Martin. You don't have to measure up. Everything you've done to try and impress me, it's all unnecessary. I don't need your works. I have his, and I delight in you. Luther, so what do you need from me? God, your faith? 
I want you to come to me this way. God, I come to you not on the basis of what I have done or not done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. And I know now, therefore, that everything that is his has become mine, his belovedness, his righteousness, his mission, his resurrection power, and his life everlasting, all mine. Luther, you need nothing from me? God, what more can I say to you than I have said? Luther, it sounds too easy. God, it's not. Have you forgotten how unstable you are? <laughs> Luther, oh, my desolation. So that's not going to go away? God, might get worse. Luther, then you are going to abandon me. God, do you remember what my son said on the cross? Luther, yeah, never understood that. If he were so righteous, why would he cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God, because that's your cry, Martin. I want you to know I have heard you in your desolation. And I want you to know that my son understands. He experienced desolation for you. He has entered inside your abandonment and depression. He was lost to me that day so that even in your darkest night, I will never be lost to you. Luther, I guess that's really good news. God, you can put your whole weight on it. Now quit crawling, Martin. Get down those stairs out there in the world and start walking with Jesus. So Martin Luther wrote this great hymn, and he wrote it at the bottom of his worst experience of desolation. Let me close with the words of the second stanza. He writes in 1527, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. But we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, which um, is Hebrew for the Lord of hosts, it's a military term. His name, from age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much. You accept us just the way we are tonight, on our worst day. Thank you for loving us too much to leave us there. We pray tonight that you will open the gates of paradise to us, that we might know that nothing is required of us in your great grace but to believe, to put our weight down on the promise of Jesus. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for delighting in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.